0: Chapter 4 today, if there is a failing of the church of the 21st century, I think we struggle to have the love that Jesus has for people. I think that we think that we're loving. We love people that look like us and sound like us and act like us, but that's not called love, that's called called an echo chamber. The church of the 21st century has become pretty famous, maybe the word I'm looking for is infamous, for being smug and isolated. I don't think it does any good to pull punches, let's call it what it is. The goal of the church is to bring everyone to Jesus, not just people that we like or that act and look and like us and fit in our social circles. Sometimes too too often maybe we let our own opinions of other people get in the way. Jesus wants to love the whole world. Jesus loves the whole world. He wants to love the whole world through us. But I'm not always sure that we're good vessels for his love. In our text today, we will see that Jesus pushes his apostles well past their comfort zone, and maybe we get pushed along for the ride. And so with that, John chapter 4. It's a long text. We're going to break it up into two bits. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who, was, who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea, went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. From what I've read, ancient Jewish culture allowed for a couple of divorces. In certain circumstances, you could get away with three. Beyond that, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of ugly words we could use to describe what people would have thought of you. Promiscuous, we'll go with that. To be clear, in the U.S., the divorce rate is currently hovering. at Yeah, we've all known this. It's around 50-ish percent. Um, it was significantly lower in Jesus' day. So for this woman to have gone through five husbands, it does say something. Um, quite, she had quite the reputation, uh, and 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 more and, and more. Clearly, she had relationship issues. We had a couple of brothers in my previous church. Um, they they were they were rough characters, but their attendance was perfect, hundred percent, and they did 50, 52 weeks a year. They were in church. Um, they had their issues outside of church, alcohol and jail and things like that, but they didn't miss Sundays unless they were in jail. Um, they invited me to their mom's uh, eighth wedding. And uh, the one brother said, and I will, I will never forget this, he said, you would think that she would have figured out that the per- first seven all had something in common. And it was her. <laughs> and I'm reminded of that when I, when I read this, this woman had five, five. Mar- now we, yeah, we don't know it, what happened to the previous. We don't know if they were abusive, if they divorced her. We don't, we don't. There's a lot of details we don't know, but we know that she'd given up on getting married, and now she was just living with a guy. And Jesus calls that. So you can only, what if, what if, what if, so much. This woman was in sin. We, the Bible doesn't pull punches on that. Um, I suspect that she was part of the problem. Uh, and I certainly get the impression that she'd given up trying and didn't, didn't care anymore, that she was weary of, of marriage. This woman is exactly the kind of woman that many people would look down on today as well. Her life was... A mess. Her life was full of sin, uh, and and again, Jesus calls her on that. There's only there's not a lot of wiggle room for defending. Well, maybe they all died. Or, I mean, frankly, if she had five dead husbands, there's a different question I have on on what's going on. So I don't think that you know. I think that the town would have tried her for murder after a certain point. I, I think, considering Jesus knew all this. I don't think I have any questions about what kind of a woman she was, but let me tell you something else about her. Uh, she, this woman was made in the image of God. This, God loved her. Jesus loved her. God sent Jesus to die for her. So how dare I or anyone else look down on her? She is a beloved child of God. Now you're going to say, Jason, but her lifestyle is sinful. And, and I completely agree. That's a problem. But the way we deal with sinners is to love them, not look down on them. How are they going to overcome their sin? How are they going to want to come to God through his son Jesus if the church treats them like trash? Nobody's going to want to come to a church that treats sinners like trash. We, none of us were perfect. None of us are perfect. We weren't perfect when we started coming to church, when we became Christians. We're not perfect now. And you may look at the struggles in my life and say, how dare Jason struggle with that? That's not a struggle for me, but I may look the same way at you. And I, if the Holy Spirit works, and I think he works wonders, if he works, then I am more Christ-like now than I was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I am changing and becoming more Christ-like. And if that's true then people who don't go to church aren't very Christ like yet and why would i think that they are clean up your mess and come to god well if i could clean up my mess before coming to god i don't need to come to god and i think jesus shows in how he deals with this sinful woman how we are how we are dealt with and how we are to deal with others how will people find him if we don't show them the love of christ Instead of being the search and rescue team, we too often sit in condemnation of others. We can be sanctimonious, self-righteous, smug. Rather than loving and supportive, Jesus, who was certainly a man of honor, the most honorable man that ever lived, Jesus treated her with respect. He doesn't abuse her. He rescues her. He loves her. Uh, He doesn't slur her, although to be quite honest, it, in, in the scope of our New Testament, there's, uh, of our Gospels, there are, of all the people that he could have really gotten on the case of, he could have gotten on her case about her lifestyle. Uh, was she perfect? No, no, not at all. I'm not even sure I would use the word good to describe where she was at in her life. Not by her society's standards, it would be a struggle with today's standards, um but uh we don't have to have it figured out when we come to know him right we don't we don't get our whole life together and then come to Christ when we get to know him then we start to figure it out uh th- there's not much time to get on people's case when we're trying to bring them to Christ trying to tell people clearly Coming to Christ is an event. It's a process, but it culminates in the event of baptism. There's a point that we're not a Christian. There's a point that we're a Christian. I don't see in the Bible a, a very gray area. You know, it's kind of like being married. There's, there's, there's the developing relationship, as I say, I like this person, I think I love this person, Think I'd like to spend my life with this person. But there's a, but there's not like a, a, a nebulous area between. Well, she's not my wife. Now she's kind of my wife. Now she's no. There, there there was a ceremony. There was a wedding ring. There was, there there was there was a day. And August third. I know you wanted to know that I knew my day. Um, and then, and then I'm married and I have a wife. And before that event, I didn't have. A wife, and and becoming a Christian, biblically is linked to baptism from Acts through Acts through First Peter, uh, it, but becoming Christlike, now that's an ongoing process. That that's absolutely a lifetime of discovery of trying to figure out how to become Christlike as I learn to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Try, fail, get up, try again, fail again, I could repeat that for hours. That's just the ongoing process, but bringing people to the church, bringing people to Christ, introducing them to jesus oh, that's that's essential, and we've got to get on that and we and, and we can't be a f- we can't afford to not be loving We we bring them to the point of salvation, sanctification takes a lot. Longer after that. And that's okay. We have, once we know Jesus, we have all the rest of our life to act like him. And we should. And We should. We'll talk on that. Uh, the point is that this is not an I told you so moment. Shame on you, sinner. This is not, the church is not an exclusive country club for people just like us. It's uh, It's instinct. Christianity is always cutting against our instinct. Jesus doesn't turn her away for her sins, but he loves her. She is broken. After five failed marriage whatever happened, I'm gonna call them failed marriages. After five failed marriages uh, she she's broken. Um, She needs mending. This isn't something to gloat over her about, but this is a tragedy. Sin is a tragedy. Not the kind of thing that we look down on people for, but we hurt for them, we hurt with them. Jesus loves sinners, and we must too. Now, there is a flip side to that coin. He doesn't dodge her sin either. He calls it out in what I assume is a very supernatural way. The fact that he knows so much about her, I uh, unless unless there's something going on that the Bible, for whatever reason, didn't tell us. We have to say that in that moment he had, he had supernatural insight into her and using that calls her on it and that's important. We don't look down on sinners, but that doesn't mean that we ignore sin. Uh, those aren't our only options, despite what our world insists on telling us today. Um, the choice is, is, and our world says, you, if, you accept, if you want to accept me and love me, you have to love and accept what I'm doing or, you, or you're hateful and you're, and you're a terrible person. That's the only option the world thinks you have. You love me and all that I'm doing or you're a horrible, terrible, hateful person. And that is a, that is a false binary. Sin is a deadly condition that pulls us away from Jesus. It supplants him in our affections. The correct response to sin is not to learn to live with it, but to fix it. We don't want to condemn the sinner, but we also don't want to ignore sin. It's what Jesus died to free us from. And too many people think that what we're freed from is the consequence of sin, hell. But Jesus died also just to free us from sin. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't need the Holy Spirit in our lives if all we were being freed from is the consequence of sin, but the Spirit is in us so that we can be freed from sin itself. Jesus shows this woman love, but he gets to the root of the problem once she realizes that he is compassionate and caring and loving. We have to be the same. We have to address sin firmly. We have to love sinners and hate sin. You've heard this before. It's hard in practice. It really is. But we have to love sinners and hate sin. And our world increasingly is arguing you can't do that. If you really love me, you love everything I do. Or 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 you're hateful. And the church's message, if the church is faithful to the Bible, is that's not true. We can love you as God loves you. We can still hate what you're doing. I hate some of the stuff I do. And I got baptized 40 years ago, and have and and have spent 40 years trying to become more Christ-like. If I'm not there, I certainly know that the world isn't there. But I'm grateful that for all of my failures in life, I've been surrounded by Christians who loved me, even when I sinned and really messed up. I hope I can act the same towards other people. Uh, we're called. We are all called to love people, without excusing sin or ignoring it, or leaving it alone. And that doesn't mean that we throw it in their face right away all the time, because that's not loving. Somehow we learn to balance, how do I I show love to this person? I don't want to dodge what they're doing. But the goal also isn't to drive people away and just hammer home sin, sin, sin. Jesus spends most of the time not calling her on her marriages, but on emphasizing that he is the life, the living water, that people need him. He doesn't dodge sin. It doesn't make it the main point. I want to bring people to Christ, and while I'm bringing them to Christ, over the course of however long that is, I pray it's a lifetime of coming to know Christ. We can talk about sin. God, Jesus, loves sinners. We need to love sinners too. Now let's keep reading. Verse 27. Just then... His disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Just as an aside, this isn't part of the sermon. We are very spoiled in the U.S. in that men and women can talk, and it's not considered inappropriate. I have been in other, I've done missionary work in Papua New Guinea. If you talk with a woman, you're clearly having an affair with her. The whole town assumes that, because men and women don't talk together. And that, that's not just biblical day. That's many parts of our world. So the fact that Jesus was talking to a woman was a little scandalous back then. Okay, so, all right, so starting over. Jesus, just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did, could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more than the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you've reaped the benefit of their labor. Wilbur Reese wrote a poem called Three Dollars Worth of God. I've probably read it before, but it hits hard. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. So, you probably know this, but the Jews hated, hated the Samaritans. It's part of the point of the, of the parable of the good Samaritan that the priest and the Levite didn't help this mugged man, and the Samaritan did, and part of the point of the story is just how incredible that is because the Jews hated the Samaritans. So we've talked before about how Israel in the Old Testament got into a civil war. The southern half was called Judah, the northern half kept the name Israel, and they became two kingdoms. Um, the northern half got carted off into captivity by the Assyrians. The southern half by the Babylonians. Sometime later, by the time of Jesus, they had kind of resettled. But, but there, there, there's an added thing that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah let us let us know into. When they carted off the people, they they didn't cart everybody off. They only carted off the useful people. So. When, when the Israelites and the Judeans were, were, were taken away into captivity, they left behind, and the Bible tells us, they left behind the poor, the old, the insane. I didn't want those guys. Uh, they left behind the undesirables. Then, because this was typical practice, they've got this wonderful uh, territory. And Israel is amazing territory. I mean, just for, just uh, the fertility of the land, uh, the, the harvest of the crops, it's choice real estate. It really, really is, and so there 's no reason that the Babylonians aren 't going to move their own people in because they 've been conquered what they would do is they would divide and conquer they would they would conquer people, and then to keep them from having the home field advantage, say they conquered the Scythians, they move the Scythians into this new territory, and they move the Israelites into Scythian territory, that kind of thing, and so they leave these people behind, and then they bring in their own settlers and settle them now, the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. The capital of Israel to the north was a city called Samaria. It was a city. The people who are now left behind after the Babylonian conquest uh, are a mix of the undesirables and foreigners. And of course they intermingle. Uh, And you know who's not left behind? Priests. So now they're making it up. They've got people who do not have The priestly Levitical background to know God well, and they're bringing in pagans, and it's all getting mixed together, and it's becoming messy and syncretistic, and it has vague echoes of Judaism. You know, they they talk about Abraham, they talk about Jacob and his well, they talk about Moses, but at the same point. They also have come to see the Judeans and the Israelites that get carted off as this elite crowd that they weren't a part of. And a hatred begins to build up, and we see this play out in Ezra and Nehemiah, this remnant of heretical half-breeds that hate when the when 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 King Cyrus releases the Jews to come back. There's animosity. They've been separated for 70 years. And that animosity continues to the point that in Jesus's day, Judea, what used to be called Judah to the south, is where Jerusalem is. And they've retaken the northern part of what used to be Israel, the part around the Lake of Galilee, which they conveniently call Galilee. And the part in the middle that northern part of judah southern part of israel where the city of samaria was is now the region of samaria and is full of samaritans and traveling and, and the people of galilee would would travel down to judah to jerusalem of course they would and they would go around it's like me trying to dodge indiana with everything that i have willing to drive through kentucky to not have to go through the road construction of indiana but it's worse because it's religious motivated and and so a real hatred developed between the Jews and the Samaritans they they don't they don't like them they can't, which then gives i mean just the parable on the good samaritan now that gives me questions when this guy gets mugged and a samaritan is walking by i just have to ask what is that samaritan doing walking on even the same road that the priest and the levite were on were they in Judah or, Gal- Judea or Galilee? If so, why was the Samaritan there? If they weren't in Judea or Galilee, if they were in Samaria, why was the priest and Levite walking through? We know with Jesus, Jesus says, and the text doesn't say this, but I know what, this is stupid. These are people, these are God's people in the sense that God loves them and there's no reason to go around because you'd still be going through pagan territory. You'd be going through Phoenician territory or the Decapolis or something like that. So Jesus just and his disciples, they just walk through Samaria rather than go around. So we know what Jesus is doing. We know why he's, he's there and it's, some of it's just common travel plans. Um. Jesus is okay with it. Now, his disciples have the attitude, Jesus, don't, mix with, don't miss with, mix with the locals. They're not like us. And that would have been just, it would have been beyond a normal belief. They would have backed it up by their religion. These guys are heretics. Don't encourage them. Don't talk with them. Um, bad enough that he's talking with a woman, but she's a Samaritan woman, which makes her a heretic. Um, and that's before they even knew what kind of a woman her background was, but see, all of us, every single one of us, was made in the image of God, and Jesus died for everybody, even Samaritans, even, even the Jews. And I mean, and I mean this: it's incredible. It's incredible to me people that call themselves Christians and are anti-Semitic, as if Jesus wasn't Jewish. Um, I don't understand that, and. And Jesus died for the Koreans, and the Vietnamese, and the Japanese, and the Afghanistans, Af- Afghans, and the Iraqi, and everybody. And he expects his church to love all people who were created in his image equally, and to bring them to Christ. Now this is where it gets tough, right? So for the first, th- the first reason this can get tough on us is... Patriotism. Now, hang, hang bear with me. Patriotism is great when channeled right. I like living in the U.S. I don't want to, for all of our problems, and every year I swear there are more, I still think we're better off than the rest of the world. I, I do. I want to live in the U.S. I like the U.S. I think that our system for all of its problems is still better than anywhere else. But that doesn't mean I'm better because I live here. It doesn't mean that we are higher quality people or that God loves us more. When I lived in Illinois, the big thing in Illinois, I've said this, is red versus blue. And I don't mean Republicans and Democrats. I mean Cardinals fans and Cubs fans. And you don't get the level of hatred some of them have for each other that would polarize families that would have made the U.S. Civil War jealous uh, of of the level of, of antagonism between these people these people, these Cubs fans and these Cardinals fans. And from the outside looking in, it's just insane because they're not even playing on those teams. They're just watching TVs. It's no effort on their part. The guys in the Cubs and the guys in the Cardinals like each other. They, they, they play in the same league they're friends, but their fans hate each other. and And from the outside looking in, sports has to be incredible to look at people how much fans of sports can hate each other? We've got nothing on. Look up at some point uh, if you want some little fun history on Rome and Constantinople. They had the, the, chariot, the, the chariot races, had colors. And in the days of Rome, the blues and the greens, their riots, the blue team versus the green team, um, thousands died from what I've read, in the course of these riots over the course of years, which is incredible. I mean, they would kill each other for their sports team. Human nature wants to do that. We want to find our tribe and demonize everybody else for, for nothing. We are not better than any other human being on earth. I do think that, again, I want to emphasize that I think that we have a, we have a, a decent government and I'm very proud to be a part of that government, but that doesn't mean that God loves me more than somebody in any of the other nearly 200 countries on earth. Um, I cannot let patriotism, the good kind, launch fireworks on the 4th of July, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I can't let my patriotism for the U.S. turn into hatred for other countries or other people that God loves. Second thing that I have to contend with or that other people maybe have to contend with. I don't know that this is as much. I'm very f- grateful for the family that I was raised in. But I have to watch against it. Sometimes we're just raised wrong. Um, some, some of us may have been raised or we were taught that those people aren't like us. They don't look like us and they're somehow inferior. And, we were, and, and it's hard to, if you're raised a certain way, It's very hard to overcome that. It's hard to say that mom and dad were wrong. It's hard to cut against the grain when you've been raised with some level of racism, perhaps in the family. Um, In fact, in answer to how do we get over that, my argument is you can't. I think that Jesus, I think the Holy Spirit in us can get us over that, but I don't know that we can change that on our own because we can't get rid of sin on our own. We need Christ to set us free from our, our hatreds and our, and our bigotries. Um, the apostles were stunned. Jesus, how can you talk to this Samaritan woman? And Jesus loved his apostles. I think that they were good people, but I don't think that they were 100% Christ-like yet. Again, that's a lifetime process. For the apostles, they had an entire lifetime uh, and generations of hating the Samaritans. Um, these are our enemy Jesus, why aren't they your enemy? Yeah, and it's funny, because I wonder if they had forgotten that Joseph had married an Egyptian woman while he was in Egypt, that whole Exodus thing that led into the end of the book of Genesis. Moses married an Egyptian woman, Zipporah, Um, the king... King David, his great-grandmother, was a Moabite, which if you put all this together, that means Jesus wasn't 100% Jewish. He may have been mostly. There was some Moabite blood in there and, and maybe some other things as well. And, and that's not because the uh, Egyptian, Moabite, Israelite, we're all human. There's just the human race. In fact, if I do my math right, I think it's pretty easy math. Everybody got off the ark. Everybody's descended from Noah. Knowing that we're all descended from from Noah, we're we're just one race. We're the human race. Um, We have to learn to love people, regardless of skin color or race or nation. Everybody, no exception. And for some of us, I think it starts by saying maybe that is a problem in my. Maybe it isn't. I know some people say you can never be truly colorblind. I completely disagree. I think you can get there. I think God can get us there. But I don't think that it comes easy. And, and depending upon how we were raised, it might be very difficult. But because Jesus loves everybody, we need to love everybody. Uh, might have to unlearn a few things, but we know that God loved the whole world, that he sent his only son, that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but will live forever. Our hymn of invitation today is hymn number 332. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves strangers. Jesus loves people that he knew would later reject him. Do we love people as Jesus loved people? Do we we really love him, or, or do we just love what he gives us? Do we just love his stuff? Do we love Jesus or just the promise of heaven, just the forgiveness of sin, but not himself? Do we want to be like Jesus? Because that's not always easy, but that's the call. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.